Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm really looking forward to talking to my next guest and that's Anne Grady. Hi Anne. Hi, good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> well, um, where in the world are you today? Because I detect from that accent of yours that you're certainly not in the UK. No, I'm not. I'm actually based in Austin, Texas. Right. Okay. It's a part of the world I've always wanted to go. It is a great place. It's a it's a wonderful place to live. It's it's the slogan is keep Austin weird, and it's definitely that. I'm a, I'm a big I'm a bit of a fan of um, Fixer Upper on HGTV, and they're always in Austin, Texas, and wacko and other yes. places doing things. So uh, yeah, I feel as if I know I know your whole community, even though I have no idea. I've never been there. <laughs> I think in the I think in the um, in the UK we tend to know te- um, Texas more because of Dallas. You know these sort of TV series in the eighties. Yeah, Austin is nothing like Dallas. Oh, shame. <laughs> no, no, it's way better. Way hey, better. Let's get that plug in straight away. So, Anne, tell me a bit about yourself. Um, how would you describe what you do? So, I am a speaker and author. I work with organizations and I speak at conferences, providing training and professional development, providing workshops, seminars, keynotes, um, and I, I write. And really my areas of expertise are on resilience, obviously, and communication, leadership, and influence. Brilliant. And so how did you get into this world? Well, I'm one of the few people who knew what I wanted to do from the time I was very young. Right. Uh, I've always I always wanted to speak. And so my, my parents used to say, well, you can be a minister or you can be a politician. And I'm Jewish, so that took minister right out. And I had too much fun in college, so that took politician out. So I had to find another way, way to make it happen. Um, so my master's degree is in, is in communication. It wasn't until I had my son and, and started to experience um, – an entire series of life events that really brought me to the idea of resilience, to my TED Talks, to my books, every everything like that. So, so what happened that brought you to that idea? Well, my son, Evan, who's now almost 15 years old, is severely mentally ill. Um, we... He first tried to kill me when I was three years when he was three years old, okay. and he uh, is very very sick. He has an amazing personality. He's funny and he's smart, but he it, basically you say up, he says down. You say right, he says left. You say take a shower, he says I'm going to kill you, and he means it. Unfortunately, and so after his first inpatient hospitalization, we lived at I don't know if you have Ronald McDonald houses there, but it's a a charity. It's a home that they allow families with children in the hospital to live in. And uh, so we lived there for two months. Um, his second hospitalization was a, a few years later. Again, that was for two months. But that time when he was discharged, I was diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland, which resulted in 
facial paralysis, which led to a scratched cornea because I couldn't close my eye. So while waiting for surgery to implant a gold weight into my eye right before radiation, I managed to fall down the stairs and break my foot in four places. And all of this was in a, a two or three month period. So um, that, it, resilience was not something that I ever thought about researching, thought about writing about until I realized that there were things that I was doing that allowed me to have the courage and the strength to get through. And I really didn't even, I wasn't even aware that I was doing them. So as I got through this and people kept saying, you should talk about resilience. I started doing a lot of research around the brain and resilience and the skills involved with it and realized that there were a lot of things I was doing without realizing I was doing them right. But there were also many things that I wasn't doing that I've since put into practice that have really made a difference. Wow. Well, should, should we start with the things that you were doing right? Because that, that's very comforting. <laughs> but that's very comforting sure, for people sure. who, who well, see our subject you know, as being think, a bit about common sense, don't they? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, common sense isn't always common practice, right? No. So um, I, I was, I've never been an athlete or really enjoyed exercise, but about uh, five years ago, um, I was really struggling. Evan was in a very bad place. I was very depressed. I was exhausted. Um, you know, I was trying to run a business, maintain a marriage, have a social life. I have a daughter as well and really trying to do everything. And I, I just couldn't seem to get it right. And so little things like that people tell you all the time that you just don't want to do. I started swimming. I started exercising regularly and had no idea really what that meant neurologically or physiologically uh, and why that helped me so much. But it has exercise repairs neurons in the brain damaged by stress. It reduces um, some of the gray matter that prevents us from being able to regulate emotion. It helps us um, get, you know, manage stress. It, it provides chemicals in your brain that replicate those found in antidepressants. So that was a big one. Humor was something that, you know, really, I, I listen to the comedy channel every chance I get. We watch stand-up comedians. I, you know, I try to laugh whenever humanly possible, and I, I had no idea uh, how powerful that was. But they've recently found that smiling, uh, A, it makes you release cortisol adrenaline, or it reduces cortisol adrenaline and norepinephrine, which are the um, chemicals that are released when you're in a state of threat or you're, you're stressed. Um, but humor is basically a brain reward mechanism. So a, a British researching team found out that one smile can generate the same level of brain stimulation as 2,000 bars of chocolate. Can you believe that? Um, it was... Blimey, I've not heard that piece of research. Who, was, who, who did that? I, it was a group of British researchers, and I don't know off the top of my head who they were, but I've been doing a ton of research on uh, humor and, and the healing power of laughter. So... You know, that was something that was incredible. I surrounded myself with an incredible support system. And, yeah. uh, you know, statistically, one out of five children and adults are considered mentally ill. Yeah. So if you're listening to this podcast, the chances are you know somebody or you struggle yourself with mental health. And what we know now is that your support system is more important than your family, friends and, and relationships and doing the things that you don't want to do because you don't feel good. So when we're sad or upset or stressed, we tend to 
alienate others. We tend to get comfortable being alone because it's easier than having to communicate and have small talk and, and do all the things that you know you should be doing. I forced myself to do them because I found sanity in it and didn't realize how powerful um, a support system really is. Mm -hmm. So supportive friendships, um, taking care of yourself, all of the things that people know they should do, but when you're down and out, it's very hard to put into practice. The sort, the sort of counterintuitive things, when you're feeling sad, it's, it's counterintuitive to know you need to laugh, isn't it? It is, and, and you're thinking, like, what do I have to laugh about? And and as someone who suffered has suffered from depression since I was 19 years old, I can tell you that when you're down, the last thing you want to do is is start to find things to laugh about. However, you actually trick your brain and you can, our brain is absolutely fascinating to me. It's phenomenal. It's an incredible organ. There's so much we don't understand yet, but so much we do know. And simply smiling and putting yourself in a situation where you're exposed to humor actually tricks your brain to start thinking differently and, and we find what we look for. So it, it causes you to start looking for things that bring you joy rather than all of the things that bring you pain and sorrow. And I think people, people under, I, I like what you're saying about the social network because I think people forget that be, having a sort of normal social life, just chatting about the the, the, the sort of normality, the sort of detrius of normal life, isn't it? What people have said, what they've done, where they've been, what they've seen. You don't have to have friends which you turn into counsellors. It's, it's okay to have friends who are just friends, who just have other lives. Exactly. And I think we get into a state of feeling the need to vent yeah. all of the time. And while there's certainly nothing wrong with sharing your feelings and getting them out on the table and having a support network that listens... It's something as simple as surrounding yourself by people at a coffee shop really does wonders for your psyche and it really allows you to start processing things in a different way. And it is very counterintuitive because it's, it's very isolating. I can tell you uh, as a mother who has a child who has incredible behavior challenges, it's very isolating. You know, you, you don't really want to be around other people. Um, but when you give into that feeling, it leads to a whole host of other challenges that actually prevent you from being resilient. So, so do you mind talking about a little about, about Evan? Uh, sure, sure. What would you like to know? Well, I'm just wondering what advice you'd give um, other people um, who find themselves in a similar state, because it must be it must be so hard for you and your family to have him. I mean, I'm sure you love him, and he's got all these. Um, Good, good, good things, and you talked about his smart personality, but it must be a constant challenge. Um, you know, you're on duty effectively twenty four seven, looking after him. I just wonder if you've got any tips for other people who are at their end of the tether with someone in the family right. who's like that. Well, the first thing is know that you're not alone. Mm. It's very scary. You know, if he had a physical disability where he was in a wheelchair or he had something that was visible, it. I would almost think that would be easier, right. but because everything is neurological, he's just completely irrational. So this morning he kicked me in the ribs and put a hole in the sheetrock because I wouldn't let him have soda for breakfast and he never gets to have soda for breakfast, but it's the same thing every single day. And, and so we're in the process now of trying to figure out what is our next step? Do we need to rehospitalize? Um, and it's a very lonely place to be. I would tell families who are dealing with any type of 
challenge, but specifically kids like Evan, um, it's really about taking care of yourself because you cannot be any good to anyone else if you're not well. And everybody told me that, but the only way I found out I had the tumor in my face was through a massage. A massage therapist found it. And I would, I used to think, well, I'd love to get a massage, but I don't have time. I don't have the money. I don't have the, you know, the ability to go just take a day at the spa. And what I've learned is that you don't have the ability not to, because if you don't take care of yourself, you really can't be a source of support. My mom is a flight attendant and she makes uh, great announcements. And, and so one of the announcements that she makes is for the oxygen mask. And she says, in case of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, please place your mask on first and then assist your child. Mm-hmm. And if you're traveling with more than one child, pick your favorite or the one with the most potential. And, mm-hmm. and everybody laughs and it's a good chuckle, but it's true. If, if you're not rested, if you're not eating well, if you're not exercising, if you're not taking care of yourself, then you cannot be a resource for others. And the other thing is talk about it. Do not isolate because you don't think people will understand. I I found support groups. I found classes. I found other parents who are dealing with the same challenges. And none of those things were easy because you're exhausted. But if you don't have that level of support, your ability to navigate through those stressors is highly diminished. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we have... We have- many points of agreement here we we express them differently but it's, it's fascinating how much we we say the same things you, you talked about these were the things that you were doing well sort of without knowing you were doing them well what were the things that you had to learn to improve well a big one was something i swore in a million years i would never do and that is the idea of mindfulness and meditation so i you know i've heard from every therapist, every article that you read says mindfulness is so powerful, but I would sit quietly and try to meditate and my mind would wander. And I would start thinking about who I forgot to email and what I was going to have for dinner and why my leg itched. And, you know, and then then I would just get frustrated and just give up. But through my research, I found that mindfulness is nothing more than paying attention on purpose. Mm -hmm. And the goal of meditation is to catch your mind wandering. It will wander. It's not if it wanders, it's it will wander. And simply the fact that you notice it's happening is the act of meditating and bringing it back to focusing on something like your breath. And we know now that there's There's an old saying, everyone should meditate for 15 minutes a day, except for the people who are too busy to meditate, and they need to meditate for a half an hour every day. Um, But it's the goal is to avoid avoid engaging with the thoughts. So you're going to have them every time you bring yourself back to focusing on your breath, you're strengthening the muscle in your brain that is directly linked to resilience, your ability to focus, your ability to manage your emotion. And so while it might seem like you're not really accomplishing anything, when you are in a stressful situation and you have trained your brain, even five minutes a day, you're much more likely to be able to regulate your emotion and manage the stress if you have created that habit. And so basically it makes your brain less prone to hitting the panic button. It, it, it reduces activity in the genes that produce inflammation. Uh, the, the army has started using it to guard against trauma. So it relieves stress-related issues. It changes um, stress-related hormones. It absolutely shifts your brain. And it's something 
so simple. In fact, more than 30 million Americans are currently taking antidepressants. I don't know what the the numbers are in the UK. And, and there's no judgment here because I'm on everything but roller skates. But it's a it's a habit and they have for example one of our insurance companies instituted a mindfulness program and they found that worker productivity went up on average 62 minutes a week so it, it ultimately added 40 million dollars to the insurance company's annual profits the people who participated in the mindfulness program reported a 30 percent reduction in stress levels 20 percent improvement in the quality of their sleep 20 percent reduction in pain um, and, and we're able to look at the fight or flight response in the part of your brain that regulates all of those chemicals. And it, it literally changes your brain. So, so mindfulness was one, um, and it's not just meditating. So for example, I'm staring in my office right now, I've got a, a giant cork board that says collect beautiful moments. And every time I experience a moment that just brings me joy, whether it is a card I received from a friend, or a good moment with my family, or a picture that brings me joy. I put it on that board. Because again, you find what you look for. And think about it like this. And so I'm sure you can probably relate. Have you ever dated someone where at the beginning of the relationship, you thought this person could be the one, right? Like everything they did was perfect. The way they walk is cute. (laughs) The way they talk is cute. But somewhere along the way, you figure out they're not the one and everything they do drives you absolutely crazy. And it's not that the person has changed. It's that you start looking for things to justify the decision you've already made. You start looking for examples to support your opinion. You start selectively attuning to uh, certain things. So one of the practices of mindfulness, if you start looking for those beautiful moments, the moments that you want to savor, rather than just a constant state of happiness, which nobody has, then you tend to start filtering out some of the negative without even realizing you're doing it. So that was huge for me. And there are, there are several other things that I didn't know about that I started doing and I'm happy to share them, but, but that was probably one of the biggest ones. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? The rise of mindfulness and the, and the degree to which it's, it's had a lot of success, but there's a lot of skepticism about it as well. I think, I think for some people, the religious connotations have problems with it. And um, and people forget it's actually just a series of skills you can learn. And you can be very right, and I was, unemotional about it. I was one of those it. people. I, I, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Rosa. No. I just, but I was that person. I was such a skeptic. I'm like, come on, really? Sitting here quietly for five minutes is going to transform my life? I don't think so. You know, I don't want to eat tofu. I don't want to go on a Zen retreat. I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, you know. What is this going to do for me? And I had so many people tell me to do it. And I researched so many um, studies at major research organizations and universities that it was very hard to deny the results of it. So I practiced it. And I quite honestly, I didn't know that it was working. And I heard my husband on the phone with my mother. And he was like, I don't know what's wrong. She's been so much nicer. (laughs) And it it just was a result of giving yourself, it's the ability to strategically stop. We are inundated with information. We are flooded with worry. We are constantly going from one thing to the next, reacting to everything around us, whether it's a phone call or a meeting or a child or a spouse, whatever it is, we're constantly in a state of reaction. And the ability to strategically stop and calm your mind 
and train yourself to do that has immeasurable benefit. And there's just no argument what it does. I mean, it's, it's just, it's absolutely quantitatively and empirically been proven. Yeah, I would say that the, the case has been won. It's just a question of finding out the method that works for you. And uh, the links to reduced cortisol and dopamine addiction, which well, of course create terrible tiredness. And you know, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to re reboot or re-energize very quickly. And mindfulness helps you with that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And the, the dopamine that you mentioned, so the dopamine is the feel good, right? It's what we feel like when we go get a candy bar or it's the reason people drink or do drugs. And your brain is looking for that release. And so we end up trying to numb the hurt in a constant state of searching for that feeling good. And people fill that with food, drugs, alcohol, sex, you know, whatever the addiction is, it's very easy to want to numb the hurt and the pain and the discomfort to try to get that level of dopamine. I mean, every time your phone buzzes or beeps, you release dopamine. It's actually called a dopamine squirt. And we are in a constant state of looking at our smartphones. And every time there's a buzz, a volume, a ding, we, we go to it. And it's, it's a habit now. So whether you're standing on, uh, you know, waiting for a meeting or you're on a train or you're, you know, waiting in line at the grocery store, we just naturally go to our phone now. And it's because we are craving that level of stimulation where if we can just teach ourselves to stop, like even if you're in a grocery line and you just take a few minutes to observe the people around you and breathe deeply and just put your phone down, little things like that have a, a really great cumulative effect. Mm. And, and I often talk to people who profess to have relationship issues uh, or you know, parenting issues or child behavior issues. And actually, when you talk to them, they spend all the time looking at the phone, not talking to their parents. Uh, sorry, it's not talking to their ch children, not talking to the, um, the person in the relationship they're with. And it, it's the same at work as well. We've had, we have these very transitory relationships based on the fact that most of the time we have noses and phones. Yes. And, and I think, you know, another strategy that was super helpful for me, similar to that, you know, everybody says they want work-life balance, but I don't believe that exists. We're chasing a mirage, right? The goal is to figure out what your priorities are, spend 80% of your time on them and stop apologizing for it. It's making sure you have time for what's most important actually scheduled on your calendar. Mm. So it's very difficult to be around Evan, but we schedule 30 minutes every single day for non-electronic time together. And it might sound like that's not very much, but <laughs> when you're dealing with a mentally ill child, that seems like an eternity. Mm. But it could be playing a card game or a board game or just having a conversation or or doing a puzzle. But it, it trains your brain um, to, to shut off for a little while and it just it creates a sense of peace and it helps you focus on what really matters without feeling like you need to be everyone's you know, everything to everyone the the pressure on us especially you know I can't speak for men but as a as a mom as a professional you have to make cupcakes and be you know the one on Pinterest with the cute invitations and sending holiday cards and going to school meetings and you know taking kids to every single activity Nobody can do it all. And we compare ourselves to other people. We, we compare their outside to our inside, whether it's through social media or just observation. And we think, how do they have it all figured out? You know, they, they seem to have it all together. They've got a great marriage. They dress well. 
they they have a good job everybody has their own stuff and even if they're having a moment in time where everything is sailing smoothly life is really nothing but ebbs and flows so we compare ourselves to others and and we do that negatively too so you know i'll have people come up to me after an interview like this and they'll say well my situation is nothing compared to yours but and that's something called comparative suffering and it's an absolute exercise in futility. We, we all struggle at 100%. Whatever you are going through, whether it seems like a huge deal or not compared to your neighbor or best friend, we are all doing the very best we can. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I learned, I think, more than anything is that there is no one strategy that works for everybody. So just because your friend says hot yoga and kale smoothies are the way to build resilience doesn't mean that's going to work for you. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm glad you said that because it wouldn't work for me. <laughs> no, I don't, people who like kale have clearly never tried bacon. I, I don't understand. But <laughs> Yes, what is it with kale? For goodness sake. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. My friend was like, you should try kale chips. It tastes just like chips. And I'm going, yeah, if you've never had chips. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so so I, I admire anyone that can um, write, write a book. And I say you've written two. Uh, at least two. So um, tell me about the latest one. So the latest book is called Strong Enough, Choosing Courage, Resilience, and Triumph. And I was asked to do, I've done a couple of TED Talks, but the most recent um, was really around resilience and and the ability to proactively create the skills so that you have them before you need them. And I couldn't find any place that gave me a guide and a way to practice doing that. And so I created it. <laughs> I went through and I, I went through the process of how our brain gets stuck and how we get stuck in old habits and how we can form new habits and identify what's triggering us so that we can proactively manage those situations and, and what does work to build resilience. Because for some people, mindfulness is phenomenal and it, and it works. For other people, it's just not something they're willing to try. So you know, there was nothing that I could find that really gave me the process to go through to learn how to do it. And so this latest book is my attempt at trying to create that so that people have a, a, a roadmap. Brilliant. And I noticed you talk about humor, humility and grit. Now, <laughs> grit, that, that's a subject and a half, isn't it? How, 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 what do you mean by grit? Well, Angela Duckworth did a a brilliant TED Talk on grit, and she's an incredible researcher. And it's a combination of courage and strength and resilience. It's your ability to navigate adversity and come out stronger as a result. And it's not something that I think we are taught. I know we're not taught that in school. You have algebra, you have English, you have, you know, science and, and history, but the biggest life skill of all is learning how to recover from setbacks and difficult times and not just survive it, but use it as a catalyst to get better. Mm. And if, if we're taught that as children, they, they started researching longitudinally. They've started teaching children these skills and in every measure of success, they are more successful, their test grades are higher, their relationships are better, their dropout rates are lower, their engagement numbers are higher, their depression levels are lower. It, it, it really is a skill that 
I never realized was something I could learn so that when I'm in the situation, I can practice it. And before I need it, I can build. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you would see that resilient skills help you dodge the difficult situations? No, I don't think they help you dodge them, right? We all have difficult situations. You and mean, we've, it, mean we've got the, to suffer. We have to go through these things to learn. So here's what's my, I'm not, I don't practice Buddhism, but there, it, there is a, a quote that says life is suffering. Okay. And when we are young, I, I remember getting read stories where the, the princess and the prince and, and all of the fairy tales end with happily ever after. And, and we give our kids a disservice by basically saying you're going to be happy all the time. Mm. And if you're not, there's clearly something wrong. Well, happiness is not a constant emotion. It happens in little bits and pieces. That doesn't mean you're not going to have the crappy times. You are absolutely going to have them. Resilience is your ability to stay down less, to get back up quicker, to be able to use it as a way to get stronger rather than get covered up by it. It doesn't stop the bad times. We are all going to have them. If your goal is to have a life without challenge, difficulty, or adversity, you're going to fail. It's just not possible. But if you have the skill set, then those bumps in the road become not mountains. <laughs> you know what I mean? They become speed bumps rather than um, unclimbable mountains. No, I totally agree. And the, the point of it is that you... Um... You practice the skills of resilience every time you hit a road bump, so everything does become more manageable because you have the skill set. If you if you dodge it all the time, you never actually learn. So you have to go through the difficulty. I mean, you learned um, in your life by actually having the the setbacks to go through. And I mean, you do need people who seem to have dodged every single bullet that's ever been fired in their direction every now and then. But they seem very vulnerable, don't they? They seem very fragile or brittle to any sort of risk. Yes, and I don't I don't think that. There are those people. I really don't. I mean, if they haven't had trauma yet, they will. The average person experiences five to six traumas in a lifetime. And again, I, I might have a really hard day and it doesn't mean I don't hit bottom. I cry. I grieve. I get frustrated. I still have my pity party. It's not fair. Why does my best friend have a child who's phenomenal and mine is really, really sick and difficult? And it doesn't mean that you don't have those moments. You do. It's one of the resilience building strategies that I learned is that you have to give yourself permission to feel that discomfort, to feel that pain. Because when you try to cover it up and not deal with it, it magnifies. So it's not just proactively practicing mindfulness or gratitude, which is another very powerful strategy. It's when you're in it and you're really sad, giving yourself permission to grieve. And we all grieve differently and at different rates and we all process pain differently and it, it, there is no right way so it's instead of trying to run from that discomfort it's embracing it going okay I'm vulnerable I'm uncomfortable what do I do to use it and I, it's interesting I, do you like lobster um not massively but 
Yes. No? Okay. Yes. Well, for me, it's just a butter delivery mechanism. I don't yes. really care about the lobster. It's just a great way to get butter. But, you know, a lobster does something when it grows that can teach us a whole lot. When a, when a lobster grows, its shell becomes constricting and tight. So it, it can't grow with the lobster. So the lobster actually has to shed its shell. And, and so it hides under some rocks. It's vulnerable. It's uncomfortable. And it has to wait for its new shell to grow. And it does this its whole life you know, sometimes 20, 30 times, the only way for the lobster to get stronger and better and bigger is to be uncomfortable and vulnerable while it's building a new shell. And we are much the same way, but we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like being sad. So we try to cover all of those things up. And not only does it not help, it actually has the opposite effect. We are more brittle. We are more fragile. We are less likely to triumph in the face of setbacks because we have not allowed ourselves the ability to grow. Fascinating. You and I can talk all day. I, I agree with so much of what you're saying, but um, we're, we're barely scratching the surface. If people, <laughs> if people would like to really um, scratch that surface and have a look at the book, where, how, how couldn't they get hold of it? So both of my books are available on Amazon.com. If you if you search my name, Ann Grady, uh, they're also available on my website, and it's www.AnnGradyGroup.com. And my name, Ann, has an E. So you can either go to AnnGradyGroup.com or you can go to Amazon, and a portion of all of the book proceeds go directly to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I I feel like our need to understand mental illness and reduce the stigma is so important. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the it's the new challenge of the 21st century, isn't it? Absolutely. We look at our our justice system, 70% of the people in the American justice system are mentally ill. Yeah. And what I cannot understand is with all of the bright people making policy, how can we not see that proactively helping these people will save so much time and money in the long run. I, I just cannot get my head around it. And I don't know about the UK, but I can tell you here that mental health benefits are embarrassing, mm. especially in Texas. It's it's just absolutely horrible. Yeah. The good the good thing is that with the the sort of there's a change happening though. It's it's detectable. I think I think um, the conversation about mental health is being had now and people can talk about it without so much stigma. I think you know, in, in this country, there's been a lot of uh, work with the, the military and the royals and such like that has really helped. And um, the good thing is that the, the subject's on the agenda now. What we do about the agenda is a different thing, but at least it's being talked about. Well, I, to some degree, but I, I can tell you that most of the people I come into contact with do not share anything about it until I've shared our story. And they say, well, you know, I tell someone if I had diabetes or if I needed an insulin shot or if I had cancer, of course I wouldn't be embarrassed about that. But depression or schizophrenia or bipolar or ADHD or, or autism, those things are, you know, those are kind of embarrassing. Yeah. And, and until we really shatter that stigma and talk about it, I, I, I don't see how we can make drastic improvements. Yeah. Well, luckily, you're in the vanguard of people who are doing something about it. So that's that's brilliant. Anne, it's been brilliant today. Thanks so much. And um, we will link to your books and link to your site from our own. Uh, thank you so much for your contribution today. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. You do amazing work. Thanks ever so much. Yeah. You take care.
All right, you too. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.